0: I do want to start in 2nd Chronicles. So if you'll turn to 2nd Chronicles Chronicles the history book of Israel's history. Right at the end of 2nd Chronicles, the last chapter, chapter 36. So Chronicles takes us all the way up to where the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken to exile in Babylon. But the part we're going to look at is is why that happened. Why that happened. we remember how God miraculously spared Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, where the, the temple is built, Solomon's temple, under Hezekiah's reign. So why would he do that then? And then, just about a little over a hundred years later, under Zedekiah's reign, God allows Babylon to to crash through the walls. So, Second Chronicles 36, chapter 11. Zedekiah was... 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. Now, if you're not humbling yourself before God's spokesperson, then you're not humbling yourself before the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. It's really where we're going to focus this morning, on this concept of turning. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So the same thing the northern kingdom was guilty of, this idolatry and following the other nations, following their ideas, their philosophy, their religion. That became commonplace in the southern kingdom as well, to the point where they were worshipping false gods inside the temple. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. So the Lord sent prophets, sent messengers out of His love and compassion for His people, giving them opportunity to turn, to repent. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until there was no remedy. Those are scary words. That a people could harden their heart and stiffen their neck and despise the word of God and mock his messengers and deny his warnings to the point where there is no remedy. There's no remedy. Now let's turn to the book of of Jeremiah. The prophet of the southern kingdom, Started his prophetic ministry during the reign of Josiah when Josiah was actually bringing reforms to the southern kingdom. But after Josiah, it was all bad, bad, nothing but bad. And I want us to consider this morning why Judah would not repent. Why won't Judah repent? And by extension, we. Why won't we repent? We can learn from the nation Judah, take those principles from the Bible, and apply them to our own life, our own situation. That's, that's how we read the Bible. What did it mean to the original audience? What transcendent biblical truths can we take from the story and bring it into our own context? We don't start with our own situation, come to our own interpretation of our life, and then read it back into the Bible. There's no change is going to happen there. The only thing that's going to change is you attempting to change the meaning of God's Word. And we don't want to do that. God's Word cannot change. The expectation is that when we read God's Word, we will change in response to reading the Word of God. Last week we looked at some R's, right? The school system has their three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. The basics, it's just kind of a, a fun mnemonic device, right? Those words don't all begin with R. We, we understand the irony. Um, but if we looked at the three R's of, of the Christian walk, we'd see that our problem is, is that we reject God reject His way, His truth, His life, in essence, rejecting His glory. And we replace, we replace God with man. Right, Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the image of the immortal God for the image of mortal man. And we go on exchanging all day long, Romans 1 says, we exchange the truth of God for error. People exchange natural relations for unnatural relations. And eventually, our minds become so debased that we start calling evil good and good evil. We, we exchange the two. So, man rejects God and replaces God. And what are you going to replace God with? Well, Judah replaced God with God's little g. But we've said from time... Uh, time again from this pulpit, that there are no God's little G's. They're made-up gods. They're figments of our imaginations. But how do we make our little gods speak to us? We put the words in their mouth, and they speak back to us. So we may think we're worshipping a god, but we're really just listening to ourselves. So man replaces the god who speaks with gods that cannot speak and yet, we need to hear from our gods, so we put words in our god's little g god's mouths. When you read the Old Testament, don't be fooled into thinking, well I'm not an idolater, I don't worship Baal, i don't worship Molech. no we we have our own idols, and right now, the most common idol in our our nation is the idol of secular humanism, that there is no God and there's only the material natural world. And so now we need explanations for how the world got here, what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. And if you're going to answer those questions without God, you're never going to get to the right answers. And the natural man is never going to come to the place where we realize that the problem is me. Nobody's going to consider themselves to be the problem. Everything else and everyone else is the problem. We're supposed to start with, I am the problem. But the problem is we start with, I am, and we don't get any further. We call ourselves God. Remember, we read Jeremiah 2.13 last week. God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, so they've rejected me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And they've replaced, they've, repla- they've rejected the fountain of living water, the source of all truth, all life, all wisdom, and replaced it with man-made Cisterns, that, that, that's a big bowl dug out of rock to catch rainwater. And instead of this fresh water bubbling up from the ground, the people would rather have stale, stagnant water that will eventually run out. And it says that, that they have broken cisterns. They're leaky at that. So man rejects, And man replaces. And we'd love for the third R to be so man repents, changes his mind. Repentance means to change the mind, to turn, to come to your senses, to humble your heart and say, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I have the wrong view of things. Maybe I don't have all the answers. God has all the answers. God has the correct view. God has truth. This is repentance. But instead of that R, we see a third R coming into play, and that's refusal. Man refuses to repent. And even blinds himself into thinking that he doesn't need to repent. Right? You're not going to repent unless you see that there's a problem with your thinking. A problem with your life, a problem with your behavior, a problem with your attitude. So we can preach repentance all we want, but until someone realizes that they need repentance, it'll fall on deaf ears. It'll be a message for somebody else. Yes, you're right. They do need to repent. If we bring a fourth R into play, it would be revelation, which I don't have on a slide, but you're not going to know any of this is true unless it's revealed to you. Without God's revelation, or as Nathan said, without God peeling back the curtain seeing showing us what's really going on, man, the natural man, Paul says in First Corinthians, knows not the things of the Spirit. The natural man will never come to this conclusion on its own. The natural man is hostile to humility. The natural man is hostile to the things of God. The natural man is always going to fight for his rights, deny that he has a problem, Deny that he needs to repent. We need revelation to tell us these things about ourselves. In that moment, that moment where you, you finally come to your senses and God re- removes the scales from your eyes and you get spiritual eyes for the first time, and you see your desperate need for a savior and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and and you turn from placing your faith in yourself, in your own good works, in your own ideas, we call that moment justification, because in that moment, you are justified before God. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, He declares, there is now no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? But that's not where repentance stops. That is where it is birthed into a lifetime now of repentance. It is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a true believer. An attitude of repentance, of daily repentance, hourly Every situation. Where do I need to make a change? Remember the the bracelets people used to wear, what would Jesus do? Which I prefer, what would Jesus think? And then what would He do? The Bible says that the Word of God is the mind of Christ and that it's sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. And so we, we... we come to God's word humbling, humbly acknowledging we need truth revealed to us. I can't accurately evaluate myself. I need God's word to evaluate me. I heard an Amen. <laughs> and so we call this, this process, this daily process of repentance sanctification. It's how we're we're sanctified. It's progressive it, more and more and more each day. Slowly being conformed into the image of Christ, thinking God's thoughts after Him, reevaluating our situations, reevaluating our own thinking, reevaluating our measure of ourself and others. Let me read an excerpt from a book that I highly recommend. An Infinite Journey. An Infinite Journey. Growing Toward Christ's Likeness by Andrew M. Davis. Uh, theologian D.A. Carson writes, Rarely have I read such a book on sanctification that is simultaneously serious and fresh, reflective and accessible. Christians who want to be increasingly conformed to Christ will cherish this book. Let me read that last part again. Christians who want to be increasingly conformed to Christ, will cherish this book. Raise your hand if you want to be increasingly conformed to Christ. Come on. It's not an optional desire for Christians. It is being a Christian. Being a Christian is wanting to be increasingly conformed to Christ. Now, Christians who want to be increasingly conformed to Christ will cherish this book first. But we need other books to help us interpret this book. That is what the body of Christ is for in gifted teachers. I'm recommending this book. Let me read an excerpt. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You get that? It's not just one-time event. Yes, that one-time event when we place our faith in Christ is our justification, but that's not where it stops. Now it's a lifetime of repentance. On October thirty-first, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, hammered on the door of the Wittenberg Castle, posting 95 theses for a debate that would change the course of history. The first of these theses addressed the issue of repentance. Why? Because in the church, he had seen that there was no repentance. There was, well, I got baptized as an infant, and I, I, I do communion, and I do penance and all these things, but no change of thinking, no change of heart, no change of acts. Uh, uh, no change of my behavior, no repentance. That, that was the missing element. It was entirely appropriate to begin with repentance, for that is exactly where Jesus Christ began with his preaching ministry, Matthew 4:17. For that time on, Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent means literally to rethink or to change your mind based on new convictions. You have already fought a certain way and have seen the bitter fruit of your faulty thinking. Therefore, you repent, you change your mind. He goes on to say, so a Christian may repent Five times in one hour, even while he goes on a simple trip to the supermarket. Have you considered how repentance works in just the normal, everyday activities of life? In the parking lot, another driver takes a convenient parking place that he had picked out for himself. He gets mad and says something under his breath. And the spirit convicts him and he repents, thinking, well, why should I have that spot and not him? You know, what makes me so special that I get the best spot in the parking lot? He happily chooses another parking spot. The person who doesn't repent is angry and bitter all the rest of the day. And heaven forbid they should run into the person that took the parking spot in the store, and the dirty looks. He begins shopping and notices an older woman struggling to get a shopping cart out from the stack of carts, but he walks right by her and into the store. The spirit convicts him of his self-focus, and he repents, thinking, she needs my help. He gives her his cart and turns around and pulls out a different cart for himself. He walks through the junk food aisle, which is conveniently right at the front of the store, and picks up two bags of his favorite junk food, the Spirit convicts him, reminding him that he intended to lose weight by adjusting his diet. He repents, thinking, I don't need these. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he puts them back. He walks by the greeting card section, vaguely remembering that his mother's birthday is coming up in two weeks. He thinks, eh, I'll get a card next week. The Spirit convicts him of his procrastination and he repents, thinking, I'm here now, why presume I'll get another chance? And he picks out a card. You'll notice sometimes the sin is very obvious where we need to repent. Sometimes it's just repenting from foolish thinking. In this case, repenting from procrastination. It wouldn't have been a sin to wait till next week but he's lived enough life to know that next week comes around and you forgot to get the card. He waits in the checkout line near another shopper. The idea of witnessing for Christ pops in his mind, but he suppresses it in fear and the spirit convicts him and he repents saying, Christ commanded us to be his witnesses. He shares the gospel with the shopper. These patterns of wrong thinking and many others are consistently confronted by the Spirit using texts of Scripture or painful experiences to reveal the flaws. As Jesus said to the sinful church at Laodicea, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent, Revelation 3.19. It is a mark of the love of God in Christ that he rebukes our faulty thinking and calls on us to repent from it. And I would also say it's a mark of our love for Christ that we have this mindset towards daily repentance. So then what stands in the way of us wanting to live life this way? I think everyone would agree this is how to do it. Easier said than done, though. So this morning, I want to give you three reasons from the book of Jeremiah why Judah refused to repent. And these will give us some clues as to why we struggle to repent. So reason number one, Judah trusted in false prophets. And by extension, we, we trust in false prophets. In Judah's case, actual prophets. In our case, sometimes false prophets. There's all kinds of people who claim to be Christians speaking for God and writing for God. You go on christianbook.com, CBD, and it's amazing what's on there that claims to be Christian. And you go into a Christian bookstore, and it's... It's a hodgepodge of some Christianity, some prosperity gospel, some uh, self-esteem movement, some power of positive thinking. I, I get so disappointed that there's so much false teaching out there, but these books wouldn't sell if people weren't buying them. TBN would not exist if people didn't watch and send in their money. And I know that the natural man, including the natural man inside of me, must be attracted to what is being peddled. And we have to be on guard for that. What were the false prophets saying in Jeremiah's day? Simply, judgment's not coming. God is not mad. Babylon will not breach our walls. Even though we saw what happened to the northern kingdom, we also remember what happened to Hezekiah. God supernaturally protected Jerusalem from Assyria. He'll do the same with Babylon as the enemy. Only one problem there. What did Hezekiah do? He repented and led his people to repentance. Jeremiah 7, 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, in the temple which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Where, where have we seen verse 11? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in the rebuilt temple during his ministry? It is written that my father's house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his three-year ministry and at the end. And the, the people were sure God was going to overthrow Rome, deliver them from their enemies, because we're the people of God. We're good people. We bring our sacrifices God is pleased with us. He'll protect us. In other places in Jeremiah, the famous passage that the false prophets were preaching, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We like to hear this message that you are a good person. There's no reason to repent. Repentance is is not a message we're going to hear in our culture anymore. You can think what you want to think, you can believe what you want to believe, you can do what you want to do, and it will all be affirmed. All the commercials. You can have it your way. You deserve a break today. In fact, the only place they're teaching repentance is you're settling for something less than what you really deserve. by our product. That's the only repentance. And of course, the other repentance is for anybody who's actually affirming biblical values. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to get with the program. You need to get rid of these antiquated... Uh, misogynistic, racist, homophobic—you name it—messages in this fallible book written by men. That's the message we're hearing in our culture. Now, what we're not saying here is that you should never encourage one another. Don't don't hear me wrong today. Be encouraging. Be edifying. Speak words of love and encouragement and acceptance into one another's life. But in this case, there was an obvious need for repentance. And the false prophets were saying, no need to repent. No worries. Judgment not coming. Jeremiah seven four. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What is that all about? H- Hebrews like to say things three times in a row to emphasize. God is holy, holy, holy. What's going on here is that the people thought because the temple of the Lord was in Jerusalem and God's glory was Dwelt in the temple, that there was no way God would allow judgment to come on the holy city. And so they would just say over and over and over again the temple, the temple, the temple. It's not going to happen. God will deliver us. He's happy with us, He's pleased with us. No reason to repent. I ask you this morning to evaluate your own thought life. What messages do you tell yourself over and over and over again that could be inhibiting you from repentance? Building yourself up in in false ways. Flattering yourself. Filling your day with some of those false prophets I mentioned. The, The prosperity teachers, the power of positive thinking. Dream it, think it, believe it. Live it. Trust in your heart. Dream a dream. Live that dream. And I'm not crushing your dreams. Hard to tell, though, if your flesh put that dream in there or if God put that dream in there. And so you evaluate it with the Word of God and with other good, mature Christian people in your life that can help you be the voice of reason in your life. Now, the world's saying you could trust your heart. Jeremiah's saying... The heart is what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? I think it's telling me good things, but I don't know sometimes. This is one of my clues is that if enough people around me are like, <laughs> maybe I'm the problem and not everybody else. Especially if there are people around me that I know are loving, love God, love his truth, love me. Certainly somebody somebody could tell me something that, that isn't true. But when the same message is coming from two, three, four people, it's time time to listen. So what are you repeatedly telling yourself? We could convince ourselves of just about anything and get ourselves stuck in mental ruts. Neurologists now understand the way that our mind works when we think a thought over and over again. It makes a neural pathway and it gets so entrenched that you could think of it as a rut. And you don't even have to think the thought consciously. The mind just goes there. And... The good news is that our minds are more plastic than we thought they were. You can retrain your mind to think new thoughts and make new ruts. Well, the Bible's been telling us that for 2,000 years. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take every thought captive for Christ. Christ put off the old way of thinking and put on new ways of thinking. It can be done. It's just very difficult. Very difficult. And those old ruts don't go away. So given the right situation, we can find ourselves right back into that old way of thinking. And again, we need people in our lives who say, hey, I think you're doing it again. (laughs) Come, come, Come back. Repent. Change your mind. Second reason people, second reason Judah would not repent, and by extension why we do not repent, is because we trust in false self perception. We trust in false self perception. So the world's saying you are a good person, and we say, yeah, I am a good person. And if I'm a good person, there's no reason to repent. There's no reason to wake up each morning and be thinking that I need to be on guard for areas of my life where I need to make changes. Jeremiah 8, 4, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Let me read that sentence in two ways, because I'm very difficult to translate this Hebrew phrase. It it could be this. No man repented of his wickedness saying, Well, what have I done? Why why would I need to turn? What have I done? Or it could read this way No man repented of his wickedness saying, What have I done? What have I done? I need to repent. Either way, God is saying, no, nobody repented. And nobody's going to repent if they don't think they need to repent. You get that? That's why people don't repent. They're being told by the world that they don't need to repent, and they're telling themselves they don't need to repent. Now, I don't know which one of those translations is is the correct one, but both of them tell us the same message. I'm kind of leaning more towards it's the, I didn't repent because what have I done? I'm good. I don't see any evil here. The natural man already thinks lofty thoughts about himself. Most people consider themselves good people. Poll after poll after poll, survey after survey after survey, you ask people, they say, I'm a good good person. Generally, people are good in general. If there is a God and there's a heaven and a hell, I'm good enough to go to heaven. That's the way it works. I've done more good than bad. Look, I know I've messed up but it's not like i'm hitler right if that's the standard then we're all good i wonder if hitler was like well i'm it's not like i'm stalin you know like we could all compare ourselves to somebody who who we might think is worse but the standard is righteousness perfect righteousness we don't want heaven to be filled with mostly good than evil. We want perfection, don't we? But the problem is, if that's the standard, then nobody's going to get in by that path. Praise God for sending Jesus Christ, the perfect one to stand in our place and be our substitute. And praise God that He's changing us into the image of Christ, not that the perfect comes in this lifetime, but it comes when we get to glory. And yet, because of this great thing God has done for us, we are compelled to work on this project for His glory. To glorify His name. Anything else in life, I would have trouble working on something that never had an end point. Like, I need I need closure. And yet... I'm compelled to continue in my sanctification for God's good and His glory and for the well being of the people around me. So get it into your mind that this process of sanctification must be ongoing daily, it's not a one and done. And even areas of your life where you have victory, you will find that a day later or a week later, it it could come back. You will also find that as you become more sanctified and more like Christ, you'll have fewer sins of commission, but you'll be convicted of your sins of omission. Early in your Christian walk you stop doing things you're not supposed to do but it doesn't stop there. You become convicted that there's things I should be doing that I'm not doing. Things I should be doing more of that I'm not doing. Like could you ever be loving enough? Can you ever be humble enough? Can you ever be encouraging to other people enough There's there's always more that we could do. Word of warning here. Careful, though, that you don't take this teaching and use it to evaluate everyone around you. (laughs) Blaming them for their sins of omission. That's something you need to do to your own heart. So the world's saying, you're a good person. We're saying, that's right, I am a good person. And I I wanted to warn you to avoid this kind of fatal flattery. Oh, we love hearing these words. There's the proverb about the kisses of an enemy are sweet, right? But the... Or the kisses of an enemy are bitter, but the the wounds of a friend are, are sweet. you're like, how could that be? Because a true friend cares about you enough to tell you like it really is. A false friend will flatter you because they want something from you. They want you to think good about them, or they want to borrow something from you, or, or, or something. Now, again, be careful. I'm not saying you're going to be a really good friend to someone if you're always going around pointing out their flaws. (laughs) I don't need that kind of friend. The natural man all day long is already thinking lofty thoughts about himself. It's our natural state apart from God to think lofty thoughts about ourselves. We also, the natural man, likes to fancy himself a victim. So you have two kinds of pride. I've talked about this often. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. On the one side is the person who's just built himself up in his mind so much that he's walking around just this arrogant... My, my family, we sometimes like to watch old episodes of The Amazing Race. Have, have you seen this show where they race around the world for a million dollars? And they, they, they make sure they find some really arrogant people to put on there. And then, put them under pressure and watch them self destruct and it's a good good place for my family to say there's a picture of the natural man's heart beating on his chest, I won, i 'm first, I'm the best, and often it's it's their're couple, so they're a team, and they're blaming their supposed beloved partner for slowing them down and and being an an anchor around their neck, and what is wrong with you, and we're going to lose because of you, and you're like, ooh. It really was an ugly, tricky thing to do to people. They knew this is what would happen, and it would sell. Lots of people would watch the show, and and advertisers are going to pay a lot of money for that. There's something to be learned there. The other side of the pride coin, though, is that person that's always the victim. And on the surface, it sounds like they don't have pride because they're saying, oh, woe is me, I'm the victim, and nothing good ever happens to me. But you understand there's pride there too, right? I deserve better. I deserve people to treat me better. I don't deserve the way... People are treating me, and they like to feel abandoned and rejected. <coughs> this concept that I find nowhere in the Bible called church hurt. There's whole books written on this topic. And it is a, it's a a—it's a sad place to be, a very lonely place to be, when you start convincing yourself that everyone's against you, and nobody loves you, and nobody cares about you, And it's a very, very sad place to be. And so, does there need to be repentance there? You bet. But it's the last thing in the world that either side of that coin wants to hear. Right? To the the arrogant, prideful person, you need to repent. Repent of what? How do you improve on perfection? (laughs) The other side of the coin, I think you need to repent. That is so mean of you to say that to me. I came to you looking for love and help. I think you came to me looking for someone to uh, agree with you and enable you, and that's not going to help you. You're just going to sink deeper into, into those emotions. Encouragement devoid of the gospel is often fatal flattery. Remember how we started the service? We read Philippians 2 and Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ and then he goes on to say have this humble attitude in you like Christ. That's where the encouragement is. When I consider that I am a wretched sinner saved by grace, what could be more encouraging? When, when we encourage someone, oh, you did a wonderful job, how glorious you used the gifts God gave you to glorify Him. Instead of telling them over and over and over again, you did great, you did great, you did great. It's fine to tell people they've done a good job. But help them ground their pride in the cross. So that when they hear you saying that, in their mind it's, Praise God that He delivered me from the kingdom of the dark, darkness into to light so that I can use the gifts He's given me to glorify Him. Whereas before, I was using my gifts to glorify me. That doesn't mean every time you encourage someone, you have to say, I just remember, <laughs> don't want you to get prideful. But when somebody's in obvious need of repentance and you leave out the repentance and just give them encouragement of the sort that flatters, you may be enabling them to sink deeper and deeper into unrepentance. Weep with those who weep. Walk a mile in their shoes with them. But at some point every situation, because of our sinfulness, will require some kind of repentance. Even when somebody has sinned against me, and people will sin against you, your first thought ought to be one of, am I responding to this sinfully? Am I making it worse? Am I harboring unforgiveness and bitterness? When tragedy strikes and, and you, you get that diagnosis that you have a disease, of course you're going to weep. Of course you're going to be sad. Of course you're going to cry out, Why, God? But at some point you'll realize that you're responding to that trial in ways that you need to repent of and change. Okay, this is a, this, God allowed this in my life. Nothing escapes His sovereignty. He's teaching me something here, He's increasing my faith. He's given me an opportunity to glorify Him in the face of troubles, which is extremely compelling in our world, to handle tragedy with grace. And so in every, every, every instance in life, there will be opportunities to repent if your heart is sensitive to this. The third reason that we, we refuse to repent is a trust in false pride. So the world's saying, you're a good person. We're saying, I am a good person. And then we look at our life and our accomplishments and say, and here's proof that I'm a good person. And you know Jeremiah 9.23. I know you've heard this verse before. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And what is it that we know about him? That I am the Lord. He's God, we're not. Who exercises loving kindness. This is that word chesed I've talked about before. That could be translated mercy. He's He's a God of loving kindness, he's a God of mercy. I don't get what I deserve. Praise God. Jesus got what I deserved on the cross, I get what he deserves spiritual blessings laid up in the heavenly places for me. He's a god of justice and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord. Don't look at your accomplishments and your gifting as proof that you're a good person. You don't have to have false humility and say, "Oh no, 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 I'm not I'm not very good at that." That's that's false humility. Well, what do you do with, with that? You bring it back to God and say, thank you, God, for giving me these gifts. May I use them to your glory instead of my own. And forgive me when I glory in my own accomplishments. I know that in God's providence, my entire life could change in an instant. A car accident or a disease or... Uh, anything, and I need to not be placing my my trust and my confidence in my own abilities in my own accomplishments in my own record. When we put all that together, the summary then is that man won 't repent because of misplaced trust; he trusts in false prophets, he trusts in false self perception and he trusts in false pride. So repentance is moving our trust from ourselves and fallen man and trusting in the Lord and in his word. And until a person knows that he even needs to do this, to repent of placing his trust in, in fallen man, we haven't done evangelism. You can't go around and tell people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life without repentance. Without repentance, you're sitting under God's wrath. I know in our fallenness and in our fear, we want to leave the repentance part out. But that's the gospel. You're leaving the heart out of the gospel, the core out of the gospel. If there's no need for repentance, then Jesus dying on the cross makes no sense. Why? I don't understand your cross and I understand your Jesus and you want me to invite this guy into my heart. Why? And so make sure your gospel presentation clearly includes repentance. Here's the bad news, but here's the great news. Secondly, until a person repents of placing his trust in man instead of Christ, we're not ready to do discipleship. We're making this big emphasis in the church right now on teaching people how to make disciples. Christians are disciple makers. We need to be discipling people. And part of discipleship is that people understand that they need to repent, make changes. And if you leave that peace out, then nobody's going to be a disciple of Christ. Everything is just good advice and opinions. And so we start with helping people understand that the problem with man is that in in his pride and stubbornness, he thinks he knows what is the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to repent of that and submit to the Word of God. Remember, at the end of his temptation, Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If this is what Jesus was preaching, this is what we need to preach to our own hearts first and then to the others that we evangelize and disciple. I want to show you as we close the the ugliness of unrepentance. In Acts 17.30, Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You get that? All people everywhere. That includes you, that includes me. All people everywhere. There is none righteous, no, not one. Since God is calling all people to repentance, then refusing to acknowledge our need for repentance is, is tantamount to calling God a liar. If God says, this is the way it is, and we say, I don't think I need to repent, then we're calling God a liar. When you are mired in some kind of situation, some kind of disagreement with another person, maybe your spouse or a co-worker or neighbor, and you say, well, I don't have anything I need to repent of. Nothing? Well, that attitude right there you need to repent of. If God is saying that we need to repent and that this is an ongoing activity, then to say we don't need to repent is calling God a liar. We're right back where we started, rejecting God and replacing with our own truth. And understand, the natural man's going to want to defend itself. You're wrong. I don't need to repent. I'm a good person. I did everything that we can... Humanly expect another person to do. Maybe by the world standards. But we live by a different standard as Christians. Ultimately, the unrepentant heart is saying, it's not me who needs to repent, it's God who needs to repent. He's got it wrong. He's saying that I'm a sinner who needs to repent, and I'm saying, I used to be a sinner, but... I'm perfected now. But let's end on the good news, though. Yes, that is ugly, but there is the resplendence of repentance. I know that's not an adjective we use a lot, and I needed an R word. And it's a wonderful R word. Resplendence. Splendor on top of splendor on top of splendor, resplendence. There's nothing more beautiful than repentance. Which is so sad because we're so reluctant to do it. But what has the Lord taught us? What puts a smile on God's face? What ignites a party in heaven when one sinner, what? Repents. This is what God gets excited about. This is what you should get excited about. The prodigal son. It's why Jesus taught this story. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's defiling you. And he tells three stories. Hey, a woman lost a coin. She only had ten. She lost a tenth of all her net worth. And then she found the coin. She's excited. And, and the shepherd lost a sheep. And he left the 99 to go get the sheep. And when he found it, he was excited and told all of his friends. And then he says that there's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. And then he tells the story of the prodigal son. And you know how it goes, but I want to call your attention to the part I underlined. The prodigal's in the pigsty, and it says, but when he came to his senses, what is that? He changed his mind. He repented. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. As soon as this is the cry of your heart, the party has already started in heaven. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, knew he'd repented, and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is a picture of our God. This is how excited He is about repentance. You want to be pleasing to God? Be a person of repentance. That'll preach, right? I don't know, I'm not hearing a lot of amens. Well, can't I just do a bunch of good works? Can't I work on my outward appearance a little? God wants us to change from the inside out. As hard as it is to repent, just know it is what brings God the greatest glory. It affirms what happened on the cross. When we repent, we're affirming that, yes, Jesus had to come and die for me. I leave you with the words of John Newton, who said, there's two things I know in life. I am a great sinner Jesus is a great Savior. Father God, thank you for the gift of repentance. That it's not too late that we can change. We can change our mind and submit to your mind and your will. And that you love it when we repent. And if this is what you love, Lord, then make us people of repentance. We ask in Jesus' name, because we understand that only by His strength and His might and His power will we be able to repent. Amen.